Good to go? There we go. All right. If you're going to join the big crowd in the sanctuary for Bible class, please make your way on in. One at a time so as not to trample each other, please. Good to see you guys this morning. Yeah. Quick, quick disclaimer for you guys before I forget to do it. I sound like I'm not feeling well. I promise it's allergies. In fact, I had a negative COVID test last week just as a precaution, but I have uh, seasonal allergies that cranked up. So if you hear me cough or see me use a tissue, um, that's what's going on and no need to be any more alarmed than you would be about allergies. Thanks for bearing with me while I also sound a little stuffy. It is good to be together this morning. There's nothing wrong with a small class. We miss those who aren't here, but uh, this is this is a good subject for us to press into. We've been we've been working through our series on sound doctrine, and in this series we've been asking the question: What is sound doctrine, and what is sound doctrine for? Or in other words, where does it matter? Where does sound doctrine matter. And this week we're going to talk about sound doctrine is for witness. And specifically when we say sound doctrine is for witness, what we're talking about this week is sound doctrine is for evangelism. There are other elements to our witness besides evangelism, right? Our holiness, our unity. But we've talked about how sound doctrine is for holiness already. We'll be talking next week, Lord willing, about how sound doctrine is for our unity. That's part of our visible witness But we're talking today about the act of witnessing or engaging in evangelism. Before we jump in, let me pray. Father, we want to thank you for your goodness and your grace, and we thank you for the incredible patience that you've shown us, and and Lord, for the unmeasurable mercy that you've displayed in Christ. Lord, thank you for this good news, this gospel that we'll be talking about today. Thank you, Lord, that that you put it in somebody's heart to preach and teach this gospel and save us. Oh, Lord, what a precious thing that you didn't leave us as we were, but that you called us out of darkness into light. And, And, Lord, you've reconciled us to yourself and given us the ministry of reconciliation. Lord, would you encourage us today as we consider the gospel, consider again what it is that you've done, the truths, the sound doctrine that makes the good news good, let that result in our worship of you, our delight in you, our love for you. And Lord, I pray that that love for you would be overflowing to a love for the lost. And and Lord, that you would encourage and motivate us and give us a desire to, to witness. We pray for your help today as we consider how sound doctrine plays a role in our evangelism and in our witnessing. And uh, we need your help. Lord, this is a room full of needy people. We recognize that it is you who we need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on in. There's a study guide on the back chair there. Sound doctrine is for witness. We got a couple warm-up questions. So, have you ever been in a situation where you had to speak publicly or give an answer for something, but you really didn't know what you were talking about? Anybody have a story they'd be willing to share? I got a no over here. That means it has happened, but not willing to share. Yeah. That's good. Peg, we can learn from your example. Anybody ever have a situation that didn't go well? 
where you didn't know what you were talking about? So um, when I was 19, I went to, uh, after I uh, had a, another back surgery, I went to work in retail. I went to work for Home Depot. And uh, this was in the Denver area. And they put me in the plumbing department. And I had zero plumbing experience. And every customer that comes in the store and sees you with an orange apron thinks that you're a plumbing expert. And so I was routinely, this was a high-volume store. This was in the Denver area. This is, um, And this was at a point in time where Home Depot was whew, just reached a $100 billion corporation, and it was so, so busy. We were just getting clobbered all day long. And, and people would find me and expect that I would be able to answer their plumbing questions. They'd come in with, with, with whatever this was, and, and I had no idea what it was. And they said, I need this, and I had no idea what this was. So I started to hide from people. And I was terrified. Now, I would hide by staying busy, but I'd be up on a ladder down stocking product. And I, I wanted so bad to avoid those conversations because I had nothing to give these poor people um, other than an I don't know, I don't know. And so uh, now that's a prideful response, right? But, but because of what I didn't know, I didn't have anything sound to give them. I, I found myself kind of shying away from those conversations. What difference do you suppose it would make if you knew what you were talking about? Yeah. All the difference Tammy says. Now, um, as Peg said, we're never going to have all the answers, right? But, but when I started to learn to follow your example and worked with a guy named Barry, and I would say, hey, Barry, what are they asking and what do they need? And start to learn and start to have something to give customers, I started to be a lot less afraid to engage with them and a lot more confident that if I couldn't give them the answer right now, I could find Barry and I could get him the answer. But there was a growing confidence, a growing motivation. Another warm-up question here. So that, that gets the wheels turning as we're thinking about evangelism. We're going to shift gears, but still in the, in the warm-up vein here. Have you ever heard the statement... Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. Sound familiar? What's, what's helpful about this well-intended statement, and what's significantly wrong with this statement? Don? Mm-hmm. Stresses the importance of servanthood, living out the servanthood of Christ. Yeah. Yeah. What else is right about it? Or helpful about this well-intended statement? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our lives ought to be a display of the gospel, a display of the implications of the gospel in our life. There would be there would be something that distorts the gospel or brings shame to Christ if if our character, if our life, if the way we were treating people was out of step with character of God and the implications of gospel. That would harm our witness and not help our witness. What's significantly wrong with this statement? Right. Thank you, Ann. It suggests that words might not be necessary. Why are words necessary? 
Can you preach the gospel without words? Negative. Let's look at Romans 10, um, 13 through 17 real quick. Romans chapter 10. I'll give you a minute to get there. Romans 10, beginning in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So considering what Paul says in Romans 10, what does sound doctrine have to do with this good news that must be preached, heard, and believed in order for anyone to call on the name of the Lord and be saved? Yeah. Yeah. Even just thinking just for a minute about what the term gospel means, good news, and if there's news that needs to be heard and news that needs to believe, be believed, we need to get the story right. Otherwise, we're bringing very different news, right? Um, is there a way that we might be tempted to do evangelism without sound doctrine, without actually preaching the good news? Yeah, we're tempted to take the edges off the gospel, Greg Gilbert says, in order to make it more palatable. Yeah. You know, another common thing is the idea of, um, you gotta, man, you got to have a testimony, right? I think, I think we now, don't hear me wrong, um, it is really, really neat to hear Christ-centered testimonies and to hear what the Lord does. That's a great thing. Um, but I think sometimes we confuse sharing the gospel with sharing a testimony. And is anybody, according to Paul, Romans 10, is anybody saved by hearing... A testimony? Not a testimony alone, right? Um, and so we, we confuse evangelism with this sometimes. Sometimes we say things like, man, I was, I was against God and the Lord got a hold of me and changed my life and I started to live a new life as of 1987 when I walked the aisle and raised my hand and I asked Jesus into my heart and things that have never been the same since. You should believe in Jesus too. Um, that's sharing a testimony, but that's not preaching the gospel. That's not, that can be part of evangelism, but that in itself is, is void of sound doctrine. So I would encourage us, we'll move on from that, but I would encourage us in thinking about how in as much as you use your testimony to witness or consider the testimonies of others in witnessing be thinking about how that is should be buttressed by and filled out by sound doctrine. And actually, um, the, the testimony ought to be a supplement to the sound doctrine and the truth of the gospel as you're preaching and sharing. And in the absence of that sound doctrine, that testimony could be a motivating story, but it's not the means by which anybody's saved. The, the truth of the gospel's got to be in there. Does that make sense? Here's our main idea. Sound doctrine is necessary for evangelism because evangelism is 
telling others the truth about God, our sin, and what God has done in Christ to save sinners. And second, calling them to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ. Sound doctrine is necessary for witness because evangelism is telling others the truth about God, our sin, and what God has done in Christ to save sinners. And second, calling them to repent of their sin and to trust in Christ. We're going to spend most of our time in Acts our time in Acts 17 today. Let's dig into Acts chapter 17. We're going to start at verse 16. Acts 17 records for us Paul's address to the Areopagus Council in Athens. So when Paul was in Athens, he preached the gospel in the synagogues to Jews. He preached to the Greeks and he preached day after day to anyone who happened to be in the marketplace. I love this. So just about any way that you could conceive of evangelism being done, Paul's doing that in Ephesus over a long period of time, or in Athens over a long period of time. And eventually, after being heard in the synagogue and after being heard in the marketplace preaching the good news of Jesus and his resurrection, he was brought before the Areopagus Council, and that's that's this leading group of Athenians to, to explain this strange teaching. They're saying, we want to hear more about this, Paul, come and explain this to us. Let's pick it up in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him, we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have even said, we are of his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of all of this to men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. 
So, in this text, Paul is witnessing that he had been in the marketplace, he had been in the synagogue, he had been preaching the gospel, the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. They said, come tell us more about this. And beginning in verse 23, he starts to proclaim something to the Athenians in the Areopagus. What does he start to proclaim to them? From verse 23 following. A personal testimony? Who God is? Yeah. Yeah, God can be known. He's proclaiming doctrine. He's proclaiming actually multiple biblical doctrines, beginning with a a doctrine of God. Let's look at the chart below, number two there. And, and let's consider the various doctrines that Paul proclaims to them. And this is fascinating in a short speech, all of the theology that Paul covers. So in verses 24 through 28, we see the doctrine of God. See the doctrine of God, including his lordship over all and his self-sufficiency. He's not in need of you. He doesn't need your gifts, especially in verses 24 and 25. We see the doctrine of creation including the creation of the whole universe in verse 24. We see the doctrine of man, that is God's special creation of man and the unity of the human race in verse 26. And, and we see man's responsibility to serve God, his accountability to God in verses 29 through 30. We see the doctrine of God's providence in verses 26 through 28. Paul tells us he, he rules over man and, and he's had direction over all of history. We see the doctrine of the resurrection in verse 31, along with Christ's lordship. And, and we see doctrine concerning final judgment in verse 31. Paul takes them through um, um, two years of seminary in a couple of minutes. Flip over to the other side and look at question three with me. How did Paul's teaching about God confront the Athenians' religious beliefs and practices. So let's think about who these people are and what they're doing at the Areopagus, the way that these people were thinking. Paul is contextualizing the gospel in an appropriate way, and his teaching confronts their beliefs and their practices. How does that happen? Yeah, so Paul can see that they're worshiping objects. He's seen this throughout the whole city. He's seen all of the idolatry. He's been distressed by that. And so he sees that they're worshiping objects. And so he comes in with a doctrine of God and says, God is the maker of everyone and everything. He's not formed by human hands. You don't understand who God is. What else, what else do we see there? Maybe along similar lines. They were worshiping objects. What else were they doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you're pointing out that um, they didn't have anything sound or anything firm. Um, they were open to a lot of other ideas. This is this is a polytheistic group, right? They've got multiple gods. 
So again, Paul comes in with the doctrine of God and says there's one God. He's the Lord over all of this. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the maker of all of these things. He's the maker of all of you. What else do we see? Do they appear to be concerned about God's judgment? So what what doctrine does Paul give them? Verse 30. One at a time, guys. Yeah. Thank you, Derek. He commands all to repent. For he has set a day, verse 31, when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he has appointed. Absolutely. So you see, Paul knows something about what they believe and about what they're practicing. And then he takes this biblical doctrine of who God is and how God relates to us. And he's, he's because keep in mind, they've already heard Paul preaching about the ministry of Christ, about Christ's death and his resurrection. And they're saying, Let's hear a little bit more about this, right? They've heard that Christ died. They heard that Christ was resurrected. And they're thinking, maybe let's add this to the list. We'll say more about that in a minute. So let's look again at the, at the doctrines that Paul proclaims in his speech. If you look at the chart on the other page, what, what are the things that Paul teaches about who God is and what he's done? And... And let's connect 4A with that. Why did the Athenians need to understand these things in order to understand the gospel? What are the things that Paul teaches about who God is and what he's done? And why did the Athenians need to understand these things in order to understand the gospel? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what if... Let's just raise a hypothetical here, because this seems to be the direction that this conversation was going. What if they said, all right, I'll write another God. Jesus died. He was resurrected. This is fascinating. Let's add him to the list. To which Paul would need to say, no, you don't get it. Right? It's not enough to say, I believe that Jesus died and, and was raised again. If in addition to that, I believe that there's a pantheon of, of God's and he's one on a list, and he's not ruler of all of them, and pick your option from the menu, right? You don't get the gospel if you don't get the doctrine of God, right? Does that make sense? What else? What else do we see on the list? Yeah. Yeah, so Mike says he's the God of creation. We see, in addition to the doctrine of God, we see the doctrine of creation in here. And implicit in that means that we are accountable to him. And if we don't understand that, then then the gospel really is irrelevant, right? If, it, if I was not made by God in his image for his purpose, then it really doesn't matter if I've distorted his image and function in a different purpose, and I'm not concerned about impending judgment. I'm not accountable to him. 
But because he is creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, I certainly am accountable to him. And he has a right to determine what I ought to do. And he also has a right to judge me for being outside of his design for my life. Let's look. Let's, this is continuing in the same vein. Let's tune in on verses 25 through 29. And in verses 25 through 29, Paul focuses specifically on God's creation of man and our relationship to him. Um, this, is, this is what Mike was talking about just a minute ago. Looking at verses 25 through 29, how would you summarize Paul's teaching in this section? So, in your own words, give me a quick summary of what Paul teaches about God's creation of man in our relationship to him from verses 25 through 29. And then tell me, why is it important for the Athenians to understand what Paul's emphasizing in this section? Could they understand the gospel apart from these things? Yeah. Yeah. You, you have, there's a little, it's a, it's a bit Romans 1-esque here. You have general revelation that is, that is condemning that man's without excuse, um, having been created by God and creation bears witness to God. Doctrine of creation implies that for us here. And, and we're without excuse in, in seeking God. You bet. So, so we can't, the point we're making here is we can't understand the gospel apart from understanding some of these key doctrines. Um, it would not be sufficient to know that Jesus died and was raised again if I didn't believe that there was one God if I didn't believe that I was created by him and accountable to him, if I didn't believe that he is going to judge the living and the dead and that he's right to do so, those are all implicit and and essential for understanding the gospel. So question six, in light of this passage, how, how would you respond to someone who said that studying doctrine is irrelevant or even a distraction from the task of evangelizing? Doctrine is a foundation to evangelizing. Can't teach what you don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there could be, in some cases, a fair criticism of, um, of a heady type of Christianity where um, faith never takes action in love. Faith never takes action in witness. Where, as Kelly often says, it stays in our headspace. And we love doctrine and theology for the sake of knowing, um, then there would, be a, there would be a way that that kind of pursuit of knowledge could be a distraction from evangelism. But it's not the doctrine itself that's a distraction, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a misunderstanding. Um, it's, it's a wrong way of thinking. We, we don't have any good news if there's no content to preach. And, and doctrine is the foundation. So in Paul's speech in this text, he probably spent so much time unpacking the biblical teaching on God, creation, mankind, and judgment because the Athenians were ignorant of the Bible's teaching on these topics. Okay? And they held false beliefs which led them astray from worshiping the true God. In other words, the Athenians were biblically illiterate just as many people in the West are today. What do you think are some of the most important lessons this passage gives us for evangelizing those who are unfamiliar with the Bible and its teachings. 
Yeah. Yeah. The process of evangelizing somebody who's unfamiliar with any truth about God may be a long process in order to teach them about who God is in order to understand the gospel. So, so here's a mistake that I have made um, and am still tempted to make. I believe Paul in Romans 10, and I have since the day I became a Christian. The faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is the word of Christ. So if I could get a Menards cashier set aside for a couple minutes and say, let me tell you about, let me tell you about how God created you and how you sinned and how you turned away from him and how he made a plan to save you by sending Jesus to die for you. And if you believe and repent, um, then, then you'll be saved and, and uh, lay it all on him right now and wonder why either there's, there's um, very little fruit in that kind of evangelism um, or also wonder why I've seen some false conversions. Um, because there's a way that I actually have presented some truths of the gospel without really presenting enough truth about who God is and how he interacts with us that have, that have made the gospel sound sweet apart from some of those other truths. And folks would say, sounds good, sign me up, kind of like men at the Areopagus. Another God? Jesus died. He was resurrected. Tell me more about this. Right? And when actually see who God is and how he deals with his people and, and they understand more of the gospel, they walk away from a faith that they never had. So, so I'm not discouraging um, um, any form of evangelism at all, but uh, affirming what Kelly says that there are many instances... Many, probably more than not, more often than not, it requires patience and, and time. Don? They had an, an, an inscription to an unknown God. Yeah. Yeah. Paul gives us a, a great example of this here, of, of the patience required. So he, he is urgently preaching the gospel. He's in the marketplace preaching the gospel to anybody who would hear him, whoever would happen to be there. And he's in the synagogue and he's doing this day after day, but with the same people, when he can see that they don't have understanding, he brings the biblical doctrine that's necessary in order for them to understand what he has been preaching. It's not a one and done situation. I had a, we had a neighbor girl that's um, probably, I think she's between Brindley and Titus's age came over last night and sat down in our family devotions last night, the very first time she's heard the gospel. Do you know what the gospel means? No. Well, it means good news. Can I tell you why it's good news? And we, she spent time in our devotions, and we talked about that. And, and I asked her, do you believe that? And she says, yes. And it's just a really sweet time. But I, have no, I follow up with questions later. And what does the gospel mean? It means good luck. No, sweetheart, it means good news. And so there's work to be done here, right? So there's no doubt in my mind that there's more doctrine that she's going to continue to need. Um, she's heard the gospel, but she's going to need to keep hearing the gospel and more about who God is. Um, I hadn't ought to give her assurance that she's ready to go get baptized right now, right? Okay. Elsewhere in Acts, we, we read records of Paul's evangelistic addresses to the Jews who had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And in these addresses, Paul focuses on proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's, he's 
the longed-for Messiah who fulfills all of God's promises to his people. We, we can see this in Acts 13 and other places as well. And so Paul took a slightly different approach to evangelize those who knew the Bible and those who didn't, but the substance of his teaching is always Jesus Christ and him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2. So we're, we're shifting away now from thinking about being in the Areopagus, which is where a lot of our evangelism takes place today, right? In that arena where, um, where folks are biblically illiterate. And, and we're shifting to a different arena here in this question, and we're thinking about in the context where people know something about God, they know something about the Bible, but they might not ought to be assured that they are, in fact, Christians. So what doctrines may be especially important to emphasize when you're evangelizing someone who's familiar with the Bible, perhaps considers himself or herself to be a Christian, but maybe hasn't truly repented of sin or trusted in Christ for salvation or or needs some help filling out their understanding? What are some what are some important doctrines for us to emphasize? Yeah. Yeah. So Tammy tells us you gotta you gotta get a man lost if you want to get him saved. He's gotta know that he's in trouble, right? Um, and so maybe this would be helpful to jump to our next question and start there working back to this one because we ought to think what are the what are the wrong beliefs that are common um, even among people who have some knowledge of the Bible and some idea of God and would think themselves to be Christian? What are the wrong beliefs that are common and then what are the doctrines that we need to hold out in order to help those people? So you point out um, wrong belief in a kind of moralistic or workspace gospel or this idea that I can do enough good in order to be justified. And, and for them, we need to begin with the doctrine of God that he's wholly righteous, um, that there's none like him. And then alongside that is doctrine of man. We're fallen and we could never measure up to this holiness and perfection. And yet he demands it. Now what you going to do? And now here's, here's the good, this is why it's good news that Jesus came. And we have to understand those doctrines in order to give a, give a hoot about why Jesus came and what he did, right? Yeah, love wins, right? God is a God of love. And that's precisely why he has to punish all sin, <laughs> God's wrath against sin is his love for his creation. And, and so, um, but believing that God is a God of love and that therefore he won't punish sin, that's led to things like pushing aside the reality of hell, pushing, pushing aside the reality of, of God's judgment. So what are, the, um, what are the doctrines that we need to bring alongside that unbiblical belief in order to help somebody understand the gospel? God's wrath, God's justice. Yep. Yeah. Again, back to the, the foundation of doctrine of God. Yep. Doctrine of hell. Right? And understanding there, there was a reason why there was a cross. There was a reason why. And, and Jesus, and there's a reason why there was a, an eternal sacrifice a sacrifice of eternal value because we have an eternal debt 
And either that eternal sacrifice did on one Friday, um, either we accept that or we pay for that in eternity in hell. What other, what other wrong beliefs are common among maybe cultural Christians or nominal Christians, or those who would identify with Christianity, that, that distort uh, an understanding of the gospel in such a way that it may not be a saving understanding of the gospel? There may be other ways. That is sadly increasingly common among evangelicals today, right? Um, really odd conclusion that some come to where, I say odd. It's odd based on what the Bible says. It's very natural for us to want to agree with this. This, this is a very palatable thing to say, yes, Jesus does save, but he's not the only way. God's revealed himself to the Christian through Jesus. God's revealed himself to the Buddhist in another way, and to the Muslim in another way, and to the um, indigenous tribe over here in another way. And yet the analogy used is um, God shine, God's revelation shines through a stained glass, and Christ is one of the colors of that stained glass. And if we could just see with God's eyes and step back and see the whole portrait, we would see something beautiful and that Christ is only a piece of it. And these are professing Christians. What are the doctrines that we need to help these people with? Doctrine of Scripture. The, the um, inspiration and the authority of Scripture. It's infallible and it's sufficient. And we have to not believe that in order to come to that conclusion. Right? Yeah. So we absolutely we hold out the, the doctrine of Scripture because the Bible says... I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And we, we have to subvert the authority of the Bible in order to come to those other conclusions. It's good. Okay. Yeah. Wasn't it C.S. Lewis that presented the, the trilemma? He's either a liar, lunatic, or Lord. And and you can't believe anything he says if you add him to the to the list of options here. He's either deceitful or a lunatic if he wasn't the one true living God and the only means by which man can be saved. Good. Other common beliefs that can distort the gospel. Other commonly held convictions that folks have that that we need to be prepared to speak to in our evangelism. Dan. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. Dan, the example that you used is is certainly pointing to some key doctrinal issues. Folks don't know it, but they're doing street-level theology there. They're saying something about who God is, who we are. Um, they're, they're positioning themselves... They're not understanding the doctrine of man and implications of the fall and how universal those effects are, right? So so to say I'm not going to go to church because there's hypocrites there is really a failure to understand who I am and and um, the the character of God and saving lost sinners and even what the church is. These are these are key doctrinal issues. Yep. Anything else on on this question before we move on?